Hallelujah, that's right. Take your Bible tonight, if you would please, and open up to chapter 3 of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. As we uh, prepare to be transported once again to Turkey. Start visiting these churches. That's something. One day we're going to get to heaven. We're actually going to meet the, uh, the pastors of these churches and the people in them. Um, and we're going to, uh, to get to sit down and get to know them and ask them what their thoughts were and what they, they understood. Now, of course, in heaven you understand things a lot better, of course. But on earth, we're going to ask them um, what they made of all of this. Well, let's begin once more with a word of prayer and ask the Lord to open the eyes of our understanding. Our Father, we humble ourselves before your throne and acknowledging again that we don't have all of the answers. And uh, oftentimes we just have all of the questions. Our Father, we ask that you would please fulfill your promise because you promised that there'd be a blessing to those that read and those who hear this particular book of the Bible. And so as we study here in chapter 3, please bless our hearts and help us to grow in faith. Lord, teach us the lessons that you have for us. And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let's see here. Is this ready to go? Zink. Revelation chapter 3, 1 to 6. The church in Sardis. So this is where we find ourselves tonight. Now, this is a familiar picture here. And um, can you see it all right from where you are? Can you see that? Okay. Yes, no. Hello? Okay, all right. Well, we visited Ephesus, then we traveled north to Smyrna, to Pergamos, then we start coming back to Thyatira. Here's the Lord. And here's Sardis over here. And so here's the angel pulling the curtain back, and there's John flat on his face, worshiping the Lord. And this is the vision that he sees. Now, um, let's not lose sight of the forest for the trees. It's very important that we understand that this whole book of Revelation was given to the churches. You'll find that at the first three chapters. And then in chapter 4, John is transported to heaven. And then all of these miraculous things start uh, unfolding before him, all of the future things. And then when you get to the end of Revelation, you find out that it's back to the churches. And um, we'll get there eventually, but how the Lord brings this uh, full circle back to these very same churches that uh, are being addressed here. And so the whole book of Revelation uh, has been given to the churches. Now, I believe that it's also a roadmap for those who will find themselves in the tribulation period one day. I think that they will greatly benefit from this. God is um, definitely pulling the curtain back for us because there are things that we don't need to know, and yet he's showing them to us. There must be a reason for it. Um, as we've made comment before, those who study church history have found an uncanny resemblance to the uh, church of Ephesus and the first century church. And then uh, you get into the church of Smyrna and it takes you from about 100 AD up to about 312 
when Constantine legalized Christianity and you have the persecuted church. And then from that, you get into the, uh, the church at Pergamos. And uh, Pergamos there starts in verse 12 of chapter 2. And this was the mixed marriage. And this is what started happening after um, Constantine legalized Christianity. His government money and favor started flowing into the church. All of a sudden, uh, uh, unsaved people uh, started getting dollar signs in their eyeballs. And they said, I think I'm going to work for the church. And they went in, they started getting uh, church positions and so on. And so the church really started mixing with the world. And then um, uh, after this, the, um, the Catholic church soon got, got itself organized and going. 500 AD, it was uh, pretty much uh, up and running. And then 600 AD, it was well entrenched. And we have the Church of Thyatira seems to cover uh, from about 600 to about 1500, approximately. And these are what we know as the Dark Ages in which the, the Church at Rome hoodwinked people uh, with a terrible mixture of truth and error. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has done uh, some things that are good, uh, but they've mixed in there a bunch of other error that is leading men astray. So we get now into chapter 3, into the fifth church, and it's called the Church of Sardis, or Church in Sardis. It seems to, to cover, if you will, again, now these are just estimates. These are just guesses on the, on the part of, of Bible scholars, but approximately 1500 A.D., right through to the rapture. Now, this church here is kind of known as the dead church. D-E-A-D, the dead church. And um, you remember that uh, the Lord is the one who is pictured up here with the seven stars. And the stars represent the, the uh, pastors and the candlesticks represent the churches. And this is known as the, the dead church. I did a little reading about a dead star. <laughs> what happens when a star dies? up in the, the galaxies there. Well, uh, the astronomers are the people that study the stars and planets for scientific purpose. And uh, they tell us that light travels at 186,000 miles per second. And so um, the number of seconds in one year, they call that a light year because the light it would take uh, the light at 186,000 miles per second one year to travel a certain distance. And so that's quite far. Now, they, uh, they point to stars like the polar star, and they say that it takes 30 years for the light to get from the polar star to Earth. And so I did the math, and that means that the polar star is 175 trillion... 970 billion, 888, 880 million miles away. And uh, the thing is, if that polar star were to die, we wouldn't know it for 30 years. It would take us that long to find out that all of a sudden the light went out. Oh, it's gone. What happened to there? Well, the star died. Interesting thought, isn't it? Now, the word 
Sardis, or the name Sardis, they say, means the escaping ones, or those who came out. Now, we don't know who started the church at Sardis. There's no history of it at all. But Christ is pictured here as having the Holy Spirit and the pastors in his hand. Look in verse 1. He says, Unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now the seven spirits is a reference to the Holy Spirit and his ministry, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The church in Sardis was not following the leadership of the Holy Spirit. It was more of a social club, I suppose, and it was not depending on the power of the Holy Spirit either. Now, let's just take a little tour and see what we can see. We've got uh, up here on the uh, overhead, uh, the location, church number five, Sardis. So we started at Ephesus number one, then Smyrna, then Pergamos or Pergamum. And then we came over here to Thyatira and we're working our way down. So it's a little bit like a, an upside down horseshoe or something like that. Those are the churches. Over here, that P represents Patmos. And this is another uh, expanded picture. And there's Sardis there, Ephesus and Smyrna. See it there? Modern day Izmir. And then uh, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis. There we are there. In the uh, area today that's known as Turkey. Now, Sardis was built on uh, some kind of uh, mountainous terrain. And they say that's it right there. Never been there myself. I'd like to go. I've been reading about it, and it really looks interesting. A lot of people do go on tours of these uh, cities over in Turkey, and they pay a bunch of money for it, and they take some nice photos, which they post very nicely on the Internet, which um, I think is free to use <laughs> the people's personal photos that they put up there. Anyhow, the city of Sardis was built on this little bit of a, a mountain in a secure place. Now, the city used to be a very rich, very rich city, but fell into immorality. Now, that happens a lot. When people come into a whole bunch of money, all of a sudden, immorality isn't far behind, and they start getting involved with things. Uh, many people that have won the lotto get into drugs, prostitution, gambling, and a bunch of other things like that. And so, here's this city that used to be very rich, fell into immorality, and it got conquered. And that's the next thing that happens with people that come into a whole big bucket of money. They get into immorality and then they go broke or they'll die or something. There's a conquering in their life. Now, the Sardis was actually conquered twice because both times the people thought that their city could not be taken. They were sure as sure could be, just like the people in Jericho. As soon as they closed up those gates, they had these great big tall walls. They were the strongest walls ever. Babylon was the same way. And they boasted too. And Jericho fell and Babylon fell and Sardis fell. And any man, woman who boasts that they're secure and uh, nothing that will happen to them, watch out. Pride goeth before a fall. Haughty spirit before destruction. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. The Bible has warnings for us. And the people at Sardis thought, not just after they were conquered once, but even the twice there, they thought that they could not be taken. And here's what happened. Very interesting thing. The enemy was camped around them. 
And there they were, secure, up in their, their little mountain city there. And on one occasion, the enemies encamped on the outside of the walls, and a soldier, listen to this, a soldier in Sardis accidentally dropped his helmet off the wall. Clunk, down it went. And so he proceeded to climb down uh, and get it, and he climbed back up the wall and into the city. Meanwhile, the enemy was watching his every move, and they figured out they just follow him. That's how they get into the city. And so that's how the, the city got conquered again, because some soldier duh, dropped his helmet and then just hopped and took the secret stairway down or whatever, got his helmet, came back up, and the enemy followed him right in. And that's how that happened. Then, of course, they uh, opened the gates, and that was the end of Sardis. Now, interestingly, the, uh, the Lord Jesus tells this church to watch, be careful, and watch. So it's just very interesting considering the history of how they got conquered. Well, let's take a, a little further tour here. And um, this is a bit of a, what they think is a gymnasium sort of thing in Sardis. And there was a synagogue. This is it down here. And this is a little closer view. And this is right inside the synagogue that was in Sardis. Now they had this goddess Artemis which was also known as uh, the, the goddess Diana. Ephesus had a big thing about Diana. Ephesus isn't too far away. And she was the goddess of hunters and fertility. We have here the temple of Artemis. That's the Diana. And down here is actually the ruins of a church. Interesting that the church should be so closely attached to the pagan temple. Don't you think that's interesting? And here's an inside of it. It's a, they say a 12th century church, but it's built on the ruins of a 4th century church. And so the 4th century church built itself right next door to the pagan temple. And here, centuries later, here's another church built on top of the ruins of that one. And so here's another view of it in the distance. And this is more of the modern area today of Sardis. Sort of what it looks like. So that gives you a little bit of a, an idea of uh, the geography and what it looked like. Now, let's look at verse 1 here. And halfway down we pick up, and the Lord Jesus says, I know thy works. He says that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Well, the works were not perfect like they were in other churches. Um, I think there was plenty of organization, plenty of human activity going on in this church. But uh, they were definitely without the power of the Holy Spirit. And folks, that's all that any church can do without the power of the Holy Spirit is just maybe a bunch of good humanitarian activity. That's about it. Because it's the Holy Spirit. That's the power of the church. And this church at Sardis had somehow come to a point of not depending on the leading nor the power of the Holy Spirit. It's sad, but there are still churches like that. And there are many Christians that are still not depending on the leading and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. 
Without the Holy Spirit, I don't think we got much of a church. In fact, Church of Sardis was not much of a church because they didn't seem to seek and depend on the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. It was Elisha who, after Elijah went to heaven, he comes back and he says, where is the God, the Lord God of Elijah? Because he knew that he needed the power of the Holy Spirit. It was Zechariah who said, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And so, in verse 1 at the end, the Lord Jesus says, he said, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Isn't that interesting? It sort of sounds like a contradiction. They had a name that they were alive, and yet they were dead. And I suggest to you that they were mostly dead. Just like... Um, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he that lacketh these things is blind. The idea is mostly blind. Because Peter goes on to say, is blind and cannot see afar off. Well, if you were totally blind, you couldn't see near, let alone far off. If you were totally blind, you couldn't see anything. But people that are very nearsighted, all they can see are things close to them. Everything else is blurry, blurry. They can't make it out. They need big Coke bottle kind of glasses to be able to, to see. And so these people here, I think, were mostly dead folks in the church. It's, it's, it's interesting that he says that you have a name, which is a sign of life, uh, living, uh, prosperity, but you're dead. That's the sad commentary that the Lord Jesus passes on many of the people, maybe most of them in this church. You know, sometimes stuffed animals look real. We, uh, we have a little stuffed fox that we got years and years ago. And I remember the first time we brought it home and our dog Daisy uh, saw this thing and, whoa, what's this? An intruder in the home. And Daisy carefully pussyfooted up to the, uh, the stuffed animal and carefully sniffed it and then decided, well, I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> it's not alive. And uh, we did the same thing with Charlie our little munchkin, um, when we uh, got him, we, we did the same thing. And, and he looked at this thing and he thought, oh, oh, it's the end of the road, I'm dead. And then he carefully sniffed it. And they sniff for signs of life and things, right? And this thing is just a stuffed fox. It looks real. It used to be real, but it's dead. It's dead. And the people that uh, do this kind of thing, they're called taxidermists. You give them a dead animal and they'll stuff the thing for you. The, uh, the, the trade is taxidermy, is, is what they call it. And uh, the, the, the word uh, taxidermy means essentially an arrangement of the skin. Literally, it means an arrangement of the skin. And so the taxidermist arranges the skin uh, over a, a mold because it's not the real bones inside. They use a plastic mold and they stretch the skin over top of that. And sometimes people in the church can look spiritually alive, but they are spiritually dead on the inside. That is true. Uh, spiritual taxidermy. How do you like that? They look alive, but they're dead. And that's what I think we have here. Um, the Lord wrote in um, Ephesians 5.14, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee a light. Now those particular ones, I don't believe were actually dead, they were just sleeping. 
Christians that were asleep. And when people are asleep, they resemble the dead. You walk into the room and maybe uh, someone is laying down on the floor, on a bed, a couch or something, you know, and their, their eyes are half open, their mouth is open, their tongue is hanging out. They're still alive, uh, but they're just asleep. But they sure look dead. And so we have Christians that can appear spiritually dead. And God is telling them, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead. Get away from those dead people, the, the deadness of the world, and Christ shall give thee light. Samuel Taylor Coldridge, who died in 1834, so none of us knew him, he was a poet, and he wrote a poem called The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. In the poem, he talks about corpses, like dead men's bodies. Corpses man the ship. Dead men pull the oars. Dead men hoist the sails. Dead men steer the vessel. And that was true at the church of Sardis. Most of the church, I think, was being run by dead people. Spiritually dead people. That's pretty sad. Still happening today. Spiritually dead people running churches. They don't know Christ as their Savior. They're lost. They're unsaved. Spiritually dead. Many years ago, um, we had in our home uh, John Getch Jr. That's when he was on the road as an evangelist. And he was uh, visiting in our home many years ago. And he was uh, telling me about a time when he was pastoring a church of about 50, Sorry, the church was in a mining town in California. It was a small little mining town, 1,500 people, small little town. And he was pastoring a church there. Uh, it was in California. In two weeks, he had knocked on every door in the whole town. He had knocked on every door. And um, he was starting to lead some people to the Lord. And people were getting saved. He knocks on one door. Lo and behold... It's the pastor of the Pentecostal church in this little town. And so in the conversation, he asked him if he knew for sure if he died, he'd go to heaven. Don't be afraid to ask people that. It doesn't matter what church they go to. You can still ask them that question. You know for sure that if you died, you'd go to heaven. The Pentecostal pastor told him, no, I don't know that for sure. Well, John Getch was able to lead him to the Lord. So the Pentecostal pastor got saved. The next Sunday, the Pentecostal pastor went to his church and told his church people, folks, we got it all wrong. We're going to go over to this uh, pastor, uh, the John Getch church, and we're going to uh, sit under his ministry. And so uh, they closed their doors and they went and they joined up with John Getch's church. Very interesting. But a church that had the, uh, the name that it was alive, but yet it was dead. We knock on doors in this city and we meet with people that are involved with churches and we ask them that question. And not all of them have the right answer. They don't know. Isn't that something? Very true. A church will die quickly when unsaved people are given jobs of leadership in the church. Unsaved people are not able to rely upon the Holy Spirit. Unsaved people are not able to seek the leadership of the 
Holy Spirit. And so they replace the Holy Spirit with human programs. That's all they can do. That's all they know how to do because they're lost. The world and the devil persecute good churches. But I want you to notice something. The church at Sardis did not experience any persecution. Isn't that interesting? You say, I wonder why. Well, it had become worldly. The devil doesn't persecute a church that he's already got in his back pocket. If the devil owns a church, he's not going to persecute it because a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so that's why he doesn't persecute the dead churches because he doesn't have to. He's already got them. And so we come to verse 2. Now remember there, there were some saved people in that church and Jesus says, be watchful and strengthen, he says, um, the things which, which remain. So be watchful. In 1 Peter 5.8, um, Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. I'll tell you, the first people to get devoured are the Christians that say, hey, he'll never get me. Those are the Christians that are first to be devoured, are the ones that are so self-confident. Oh, I don't have anything to worry about. I don't have to worry about the devil. I don't have to pray, and I don't have to put on the armor of God daily. I don't have to seek God's face. I've done pretty good. Hey, he doesn't even know I exist. I can just fly under the radar. I'll never get devoured by the devil. Those ones are going to be the ones that will be devoured by the devil. Remember that these letters and, the, and the, the letter to the church of Sardis was written to the pastor. Written to the pastor. And so the pastor was uh, the one primarily being addressed here. I'm sure he was saved. But uh, the, the admonition is still very stern, very strong. Be watchful. Watch out. So remember, wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth. Take heed lest he fall. There are so many Christians that are in a state of disrepair and they know it. They know their life isn't right with God. They know it. But they also know if you go back a few years, they were close with God. They were just as close as could be with God. They walked with God. They served God. They sang the hymns from their heart. Life was great. So whatever happened between that point and today? Whatever happened? the devil's been devouring you, buddy. The devil's been eating you up. He's, he's eaten up your devotions. He's eaten, he's eaten up the love that you used to have for Jesus right out of your heart. Isn't that right? Or am I wrong? That's often the case, isn't it? That years ago, Christians that were so close with God, and now today, where, where are they? Oh, they don't serve the Lord. They don't lift a little finger for the Lord. For themselves, they'll do all kinds of things, but nothing for the Lord. What happened? How did they get so dead? Because they got devoured. They got devoured. What should they do? They should get back with God. They should humble themselves and admit to God that God is right and they are wrong. They should cry out to God for mercy and, and grace and help to get back to where they once were. And so be watchful 
And he tells them in this verse, strengthen what is about to die. Some Christians in that church of Sardis were carnal and they were not strong for Jesus. Probably through a lack of, I'm, I'm guessing this, but quite likely through a lack of strong preaching from the pulpit. Probably from a lack of strong Bible studies in, in, um, in, their, um, in their homes and in Sunday school, we'll call it. Can you imagine what would happen to our church if we just let our soul winning die? What would happen to our church if we let our, our mission, missions mindedness die? What would happen? Eventually, we would die right along with it. Because it's the great commission and it's the seeking of lost souls that keeps us alive and keeps us vibrant. Otherwise, we're just going to become a, an ingrown toenail and eventually we'll die. I think that it's sad, but I think that there's a lot of churches that go this way and they don't have to be 50 years old churches. They can be just new churches even. But a pastor may get discouraged. People are discouraged. Maybe they tried knocking on a few doors, hanging a few flyers or something. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. And so what they do is they say, oh, well. And then they start to get into these deeper Bible studies and they never try and reach out. And as soon as the outreach dies, so does the, the life of the church. It dies. Now, it may take, it may take a couple of years to really die, but it, it will die. And then when you go to visit churches like that, and then they're just very small, and oh, they say, we're not into this big, flashy, uh, quick, easy believism sort of evangelism. No, not us. We're into the deeper truths. And there's maybe eight of them in church on a Sunday morning, whereas maybe there was 80 at one point. Like this kind of thing happens. A pastor moves on, another pastor takes over, and he lets the soul winning die and the missionaries, uh, he cuts the missions and so on. And before you know it, the church dies. It's dwindling and dying and dying and dying. And it's so sad. And I think that this may be what happened here in this church here. You know, in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, it says, By much slothfulness, the building decayeth. And through idleness of hands, the house droppeth through. And we know that if we don't do any maintenance on our cars, if we don't change the oil, if we don't do regular things on it, it's going to seize up, it's going to let us down, it's going to die. Cars require maintenance. Houses and apartments require maintenance. Church buildings, maintenance. Churches, maintenance. Christians, maintenance. We need it. <clears throat> In verse 3, he says, Remember, therefore... Oh, I should make mention in the end of verse 2, when he says, For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Because he did mention, he said in verse 1, I know thy works. But these works were not perfect before God. And the reason they weren't perfect is there was no Holy Spirit power. There was no leading and dependence on the Holy Spirit. And so, verse 3, Remember, therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. Now, if they didn't watch, boy, he says, remember, hold fast, repent. And if they didn't watch, Jesus was going to come in swift judgment. And as we're about to see, the Lord Jesus can kill people. He can close churches. He can make things fall apart. 
He really can do that. When he says hold fast, it refers to solid, sound doctrine. Because that's what goes, folks. That's the foundation. And when the foundation starts cracking and crumbling, the house droppeth through. Repent for the carnal Christian. Repent for the unsaved within the church before it's too late. So he says here, um, hold fast, repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Verse four, thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. And so the spiritual were among the unspiritual in the church of Sardis. The sincere were amongst the hypocrites. The humble were amongst the proud. And the separated were amongst the worldly. You might say, well, why did they stay there? Why didn't they just leave that church and go to another church? It's quite possible that there was not another church to go to. But another reason also, some churches that started great and preached the word of God and were soul winners and were supporters of missions, Years go on, pastors change, congregations kind of grow up, move on, a new generation comes. And you still have some of the old stalwarts in the church, but by this time now, things have changed. They got the big band up on the front and things are different. They don't use uh, the King James Bible, they, they use the NIV. Uh, they, uh, they tear up the Constitution. They throw away the hymn books. They get rid of the piano, rid of the organ anything conservative. They got to learn to relate, relate to the community. And so they dress kind of slovenly as they come up on the front and everything's ooh, ah, and touchy-feely and so on. And you've got some of the old crowd sitting out there that are just dying a thousand deaths. Oh, why did this have to happen? Why is my church going this way? Oh, why, oh, why, oh, why? And you say, well, why don't you leave that church? Because we have children in this church. We've got grandchildren in this church. That's why they don't leave. Whether it's right or wrong, that's the truth. That's what happens. And that may be what was happening here in the church of Sardis. Because remember now, it was pushing 100 AD. The church had been around maybe for 50 years. And uh, some of the older crowd had died out. New ones came on and... Things weren't the same as they used to be. And so anyhow, he's, he calls these dear ones uh, and he, he refers to them as not having defiled their garments in verse 4. The garment was the outer functional article of clothing, such as a cloak. It was worn for warmth and protection. And um, interesting because in Jude 23, it says, we're to hate the garment spotted by the flesh. It's referring to a defiled character. James talks about it in 127. He says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, here it comes, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And here the Lord Jesus is commending these certain ones, the stalwarts. Maybe it was the older crowd in this particular church. They had not defiled their garments. And so we come to verse 5. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. 
You know, we read, we won't take the time, but in Revelation 19.8, it talks about Christ's bride. It says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Now the Lord Jesus says something very interesting, and I don't want you to miss this, because this is really important. It deals with our security. In verse 5, He says, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Now, some people misinterpret this and they seem to think that in this big book of life, when you get saved, your name is written in there. But if you sin, the Lord might blot your name out of there and you'll lose your salvation. That is not what Jesus is saying. To understand what the Lord Jesus is saying, we have to compare Scripture with Scripture and we have to look at the historical setting because those words meant something to those people living in Sardis within the greater Roman Empire. They understood what it meant to have your name blotted in a book, in a register. And so the Lord Jesus here is actually giving us a tremendous promise. Now in John's day, the Roman government always kept a register that was very much like a census. If a person moved to another province, his name was put on that register and erased or blotted from the former register. If the person died, his name was removed from the register altogether. Now, only if a Roman citizen committed a very heinous crime against the state could his name be removed from the register and he was no longer considered a citizen, in which case he could be crucified because crucifixion applied not to the Roman citizens, but to the non-citizens. Now, Jesus said that he will not blot out his name out of the book of life. My friends, that is security. That is eternal security. Notice it doesn't say he erases it, but he blots it. To blot means to cover some writing with an ink stain, if you will. That's what a blot is. It's a blotch of ink. It's a a measure of ink. Sometimes when you write something and then you say, no, that's wrong, and you take your pen and you make lines across it like that. What you're doing is you're sort of blotting it out. Or you'll do curly cues or something. You'll blot it out. Or you take a black magic marker and you'll run it over the word or sentence. You'll blot it out. That's what it means to blot out. Now, at the moment of conception, when you and I were first conceived in our mummy's tummies, a person's name is written in the book of life. The book of life is just that, life. And as soon as your life began, your name was written. Now, we'll just take a real quick look, please, at chapter 20. Revelation 20. Now in chapter 20, look please at verse 12. All this stuff happens after the thousand year reign of Christ. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. Notice plural books. And another book was open, which is the book of life. So you have one book of life, and then you have all these other books. Um, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, plural 
according to their works. So those books are all about the works and the life of every human being. And then we get down to verse 15. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So at the moment of conception, when you were very first conceived, your name was written in the book of life. Now, if you die in your sins and go to hell, your name is blotted out. So that when the book of life is opened at the very end of time here, and you stand before the great white throne judgment of Christ to be judged for your sins, that's all recorded in those books. And then the book of life is opened and a check is made whether your name is there. It's not there. And after that, you're cast into the lake of fire. This is the book of life. That's why it's called life. The book of life. Now, when a person is saved, their sins are blotted out of the specific book of your life. Remember, there's two, two sets of books here. Well, there's a set of books and there's one book. The book of life is one book. Then there's all these other books. There's a book there with your name on it. And if your name is blotted out of the book of life, your sins are not blotted out of your book of your life. Does that make sense? This is your life. And they open the book. It's got your name on it. And all this stuff written in there. All your sins. Well, let's see if your name is in the book of life. No, it's not. Not there. Then you're cast in the lake of fire. When you're saved, your name is never blotted out of the book of life. But your sins are out of these books over here. There's no sin recorded there. It's all blotted. Covered with the blood. Gone. There's different ways of expressing it. I've heard preachers use different, different analogies and so on. But that's in essence what you've got. You've got all these books and you've got this one book. That's what we've got here. Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I, even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. That's why I know that in the book that's got my name on it, he's blotted out all of my sins. They're all blotted out. That's what he says in Isaiah 43, 25. Isaiah 44, 22, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions. And as a cloud, thy sins return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So when a person dies in their sin, his name is blotted out with ink, so it can no longer be read. Psalm 69, 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Exodus 32, 32. Here's the words of Moses himself. He says, Yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Exodus 32, 33. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. You see, this is tremendous. If you look at it again in chapter 3 of Revelation, the Lord Jesus, he's, he promises 
that uh, will be clothed in white raiment, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Isn't that wonderful? When you get saved, your name will never be blotted out, but all your sins are blotted out. If you never get saved, then your name is blotted out of the book of life and all your sins are left written in the book that that has your name on it. That's the mechanics. That's how she works. That's wonderful to know. When you're saved, that name will never be blotted out. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. That's good news, isn't it? He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. John 5, 24. Again and again, we've got the assurances of God on this matter. In verse 6, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The message is clear for you and for me from the church at Sardis. Here's the message that God wants us to know is don't let things fall apart. Maybe things have been crumbling in your life. Stop the crumbling. Get it back together. Don't let things fall apart. Don't let it happen. He says, repent. Repent for closer fellowship with God. Remember Ecclesiastes chapter 10 says, by much slothfulness, the building decayeth. Think of the slothfulness as it regards to your, uh, your daily devotion time with God, your, your uh, weekly church attendance, your tithing, your giving of faith promise, your service for the Lord. You're letting your light shine as a witness in the world for the Lord. Your ministry of intercessory prayer for others. Think of these things in terms of the slothfulness and the building decay. Don't let your personal walk with God fall apart. Keep yourself close to God. Don't let your family fall apart. Keep your family in church. Don't let your church fall apart. Keep the church as the apple of your eye. Back in the early 1800s, the very best Bible schools in the world were located in Germany. And out of these Bible colleges came great and brilliant and godly men that went and pastored churches. But something was happening in those Bible colleges in Germany, and by about 1850, these Bible colleges began watering down the Bible. They began denying the miracles of the Bible. They began denying the virgin birth of Jesus. And it's like they were spiritually dead, but the thing is, no one really seemed to notice. The Bible colleges were now teaching that the Bible had errors in it, lots of them. But they kept sending out their graduates, and the graduates were being hired on to Uh, uh, churches uh, as their pastors around the world. And soon these churches also died. And many of these churches became brightly painted sepulchers 
full of dead man's bones. Did you know it's not enough to start right? But you must finish right. Isn't that right? Pray with me.